Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Dangerous Minds. Brought to you by Offscript. I'm Ed Stafford, the first person to walk the length of the Amazon River. I've always been fascinated by adventure travel. But is it an addictive, somewhat selfish escape? Or could it be a powerful vessel for self-development? In this series, I'll be talking to some of the people I admire the most about why they do it, what they've learned, and what impact it has had on their lives. What does drive people to endure hardship while leaving those that they love to cope on their own at home? And is such risk-taking a reckless indulgence? Or could it be a simple crucible in which one can resolve mental health issues and help find emotional balance in life? Having already accomplished much by the time he was 18 years old, Jeff had sailed across the Atlantic Ocean three times, completed several solo voyages and sailed over 30,000 nautical miles. And then, on the 5th of September 1984, his life changed. All hopes, dreams and expectations of earning his livelihood as a professional yachtsman were destroyed after diving into the Caribbean Sea and breaking his neck. Jeff spent a year in hospital and has been a quadriplegic ever since. On the 5th of September 2007, 23 years later to the day, Jeff climbed his personal Everest by becoming the first disabled yachtsman to single-handedly sail around Great Britain. He since also sailed across the Atlantic in 2011 and was awarded both Yachtsman of the Year by Sir Robin Knox Johnson and an MBE for services to disabled sailing by Her Majesty the Queen. Ladies and gents, I'm very proud to welcome adventurer and my good friend, Jeff Holt. Hi Ed, thanks for that lovely welcome. That's all right mate, it's absolutely lovely to see you actually. It's always a bit strange isn't it when someone reads out your, your past accolades and you think crikey did I really do all that I know mate but you did didn't you it's, it's absolutely remarkable um I, you know, I'm going to start with the with um the current situation then I'm obviously going to dig into all of that as well um but how has life been for you over the last few months on lockdown as you, as you explained I broke my neck so I became quadriplegic and with that comes a whole load of health conditions I'm paralyzed from the chest down um we can talk about that a bit more later maybe but I kind of when the when the government put everyone into lockdown and, sh- and they, they created this category called shielding back on the 22nd of March, I think it was. Um, I fall into that category. There's a few hundred thousand of us around the UK and it's effectively people with low um, immune systems. Um, and I fell into that. So I have been a good boy. I've been abiding by the rules and I have not left my house for 103 days. Not that I'm counting. Um, and it has been challenging. It's been challenging in a number of ways. Ed, you know, you know yourself. You put yourself in isolation in certain, you know, parts of the world, and um, and and I've done the same. And it's felt like that at times. I've been very lucky. I've got a house I can move around in. Um, you know, it's been sunny. I've been able to get out into the garden. I've got a wife and a son. Um, um, but it has been. It's that kind of knowing that you're not allowed to go out has been the biggest restriction. Do images of uh, thousands of people on Brighton Beach frustrate you somewhat? I mean, yeah, it, does it make you a bit it, angry? It makes, I, yeah. I, I was, I, I kind of tempered the anger now with just a feeling of, it just feels unfair, Ed. Um, you know, there's, I, I, I've, I've, I've self-isolated. I've shielded for two reasons. One, selfishly, I suppose you could say. I'm a father, I'm a husband. I don't want to die of this disease because if I get it, I'm going to, I've been in intensive care several times. I've I've had I've been intubated with um, you know um, uh, ventilators in, in ICU, and it is not nice. And I know that my breathing is is so compromised, my lungs are so compromised because of my disability. I won't survive it. So there's a selfish point of view, but also there's um, it's felt like a little bit doing my duty. I've you know I've never if I was ever able to join the forces, I would have done to do my bit for Queen and Country. And I just feel that I've done my bit and I feel proud that I've done my bit and my 
wife and my son, Tim and Elaine, have really looked after me and they've tried not to go out too much. So I, you feel you've done your bit and then you see on TV and you read in the papers about, you know, whether it's the marches or whether it's the football fans, or whether it's the beaches, you just think, oh, come on, guys, you know, because if there is going to be a spike and there's talk of spikes already, then we're going to be back into lockdown. And I'm not entirely sure I can cope with much more of this. Yeah, no, I do know what you mean. I mean, for very different reasons, obviously, Laura fell into that category slightly as well because she's pregnant with twins. And um, so we've been quite squeaky clean as well. And I, that resonates with me in terms of, you know, there's the pe- <laughs> there's so many people who've just been going out and being so blase and ignoring it. And um, I, I was getting angry at first and then I just thought, do you know what? It's so difficult to control an entire population, isn't it? Or, or suddenly give everyone a conscience because not everyone... Not everyone really has a conscience, do you know, they? I, I think a lot of it comes down to self-response and personal responsibility, Ed. And yeah. I think common sense and personal responsibility. We've got friends who live in Spain, and um, you know, during the lockdown there, they went out and they were confronted by policemen with guns. So, you know, I'm not sure we're ready for that in the UK because we kind of police with consent. But I'm getting a bit political there. But I just Mate, I, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> we're just lucky that we're going into the summer and we're not taking this into the winter yet. Um, yeah. So yeah. So it's it's been challenging. I've been through a bit of an emotional roller coaster. I had a couple of bad days, um, but um, you know anyone who's used to you know being on their own for periods of time, we have coping mechanisms, and I've been using some of those. My way of dealing with all of that, because I've you know I've had mental health problems in the past, and I think personally I think it's something that everybody manages pretty much throughout their entire life to a greater or lesser degree. But um, my version was going out on a run, you know, was absolutely resetting by having physical perspective from the house um, and obviously working within the guidelines and everything. But but um, if you can't do that, what, what have you been doing to cope? So I, I started off with, the, I knew there was going to be a long haul. I knew it was going to be 100 days plus because they said three months. So I yeah. thought I'd le- learn to start painting. Um, really? Well, that lasted three or four days because I'm not very good at painting. <laughs> so I came up with some, um, yeah, early, in early days, I decided I wanted to keep myself occupied. Uh, but I've, do you know, I've possibly been busier than ever because of the, well, we'll touch on it later, but the work I do with Wet Wheels. The thing with lockdown is you've had no excuses. Everyone knows where you are. You can't be anywhere else. So you can't make excuses that you have meetings or you have to be somewhere. I've ended up being actually extraordinarily busy and that's not helped at times. I've had to put restrictions on how often people contact me. Yeah, no, I, I, think, I think it's an absolute fallacy that we've, everyone's got all the time in the world now. I, I totally agree with you. I've been absolutely rushed off my feet and, you know, especially when you've got, um, we've both got one son at the moment and, then you know, it takes up time, doesn't it? You've got, you've got to uh, spend time with them and then trying to fit a normal day work into three hours or something is... Well, uh, interestingly, you, uh, you started the question a moment ago about coping, you know, how, how I kind of decided to get through it. And it did remind me when you said that about when I was very young, um, before my accident or any of that, I did a lot of sailing. And I always, always, as a young kid, used to dream about crossing the finishing line of a round-the-world yacht race, standing on the front of my of the boat with my arms in the air, being, you know, adored by, you know, hordes and crowds of people. And that, bizarrely, is everything I've done through my life. I've always seen the end game and envisaged that's what's got me through. And this crisis is no different. I kind of... You know, that is a bit of a cliche, the light, always light at the end of the tunnel. Um, but I genuinely feel that, I, you know, we will always look back on bad times and, and laugh at them at some point. But that's that's my coping mechanism. OK, yeah. And I am going to come back to that a bit later on. But I'm going to start from the very beginning, really. Um, you say you had dreams of, of winning around the world yacht race. So who were your biggest inspirations um, as you were growing up? What, what sort of made you? Were, were they yachtsmen or adventurers? Yeah, they were. To be clear, um, my mum remarried when I was about five or six, and she married a, uh, a chap who had a sailboat. His name was John Holt. And we lived in a house on the Hamble River, on the edge of the river, and there was, we had a lovely sail yacht um, called, um, called Gulliver. And every weekend and every holiday, we'd, we'd go for sailing trips um, along the coast or a bit further afield. Um, and on a boat in the mid-'70s, there was no TV. We didn't have TV. We didn't have mobile phones. Um, so all I would do was read, and in the bookcase was a whole series of books by this person called, well, he wasn't Sir then, it was Robin Knox Johnston, um, because 
six, seven, eight years earlier, this guy had sailed around the world and I was reading his story. There was a guy called Eric Hiscock, um, Hiscox, who wrote about his adventures in a boat called Wanderer. I would sit there and read about these people who'd sailed around, around the world or on the oceans. And my bedroom in my house, Wisteria Cottage, um, in somewhere called Lower Swanwick on the Hamble, my bedroom looked down the Hamble River um, and it, you know, it's where the sun set. And I would always see boats coming and going as a kid. And I just wonder where they were going. And it sparked my imagination. And so when I got to the age of 16 and I came to leave school, I jumped at the opportunity to join a, join a sailboat. I was a 16-year-old lad. I went to the Med for six months and I went and had my first major adventure. So between that time and by the time you were 18, you'd actually done quite a lot of sailing. Obviously, as I said in the introduction, you'd sailed across the Atlantic three times by the age of 18, yeah. which, is, which is pretty amazing. Um, can you tell the story? What, what happened um, in terms of your accident? So you're right. Those two years, um, three Atlantic crossings, some 30 plus thousand miles. I was 18 years old. You know, I, this was like I was living the dream. I I'd actually felt at that time that I'd lived quite a full life. Um, and then I was offered the dream job. I was offered the job to skipper um, a charter boat in somewhere called Tortola. Yeah. And Tortola is in the British Virgin Islands um, in the Caribbean. So I flew out as an 18-year-old. Um, I completed the paperwork um, I in Tortola. I went to a beach, one of the most beautiful beaches in the world called Payne Garden Bay. And I just went there. I had a sandwich, decided to go for a swim. Um, it's about two o'clock in the afternoon. I ran down the beach in my shorts, you know, like you see them do thousand times over on films and things. And I got to my knees in, you know, in water. I couldn't run anymore. Put my arms above my head, dived forward into a wave, um, and there was a sandbar underneath the um, underneath the waves. And I hit my head um, quite firmly. Um, it pushed my neck under my body, um, and I broke my neck at the fifth vertebrae between the shoulder blades. Um, I didn't lose consciousness. I was still still wide awake. Um, but I, I was holding my breath, and I now was at risk of drowning. And I remember seeing the sand rising and falling below my face as, um, as I just held my breath. Luckily, my friend had seen it happen, and he turned me over and pulled me out. And um, so that was it. September the 5th, 84, was when it all changed. And so from that point on, I mean, you obviously went into into hospital there. Did you get shipped home quite quickly as well? Um, well, they didn't have the resources on the island. They, they're still quite um, limited medical care. Um, so that night, the US Coast Guard flew me out of Tortola um, to Puerto Rico, which is about 120 miles north, um, to a hospital there. And I spent three to four weeks in that hospital in Puerto Rico. Uh, and the reason being, and I won't bore you with all the details, but the company I was working for suddenly decided I wasn't working for them. Um, so therefore, any insurance, which I know I had, um, was invalidated. And our British government at the time decided that they were not going to um, to fly me home. Um, and it, it was only a what's known as a, what they used to call mercy mission, a mercy flight um, run with the Daily Express, I think it was. And British Caledonian stepped up to the mark. And they, um, they provided 13, 14 seats on a scheduled airliner. And they flew me back to, to England. Um, I was a very poorly little boy, poorly young lad at the time. They flew me to Oddstock Spinal Unit, which had been Salisbury, which had been opened two months earlier. Princess Di and Charles had opened it. And I was one of the first patients in. And um, yeah, so I was admitted there. And I spent the next, cranky, 10 months in hospital rehabbing. Which is where you went, Elaine, is that not correct? Yeah, so that's the, that's the Mills and Boone moment, of course. <laughs> yeah. uh, and for those that, yeah, let me just qualify that. So Elaine, who we just referred to, my wife, is, was my nurse. Yeah. So little Elaine, um, all five foot of Elaine, looked after me for 10 mm. months and, um, and made sure that I got better. And, and when I left hospital at the age of 19 years old, she left with me. And so we've been together now, crikey, that's 36 years ago. And we've been married 33 years this year. Oh, it's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. <laughs> uh, she, she's the strong one. She's the hero in the story, of course. Well, she is one of the heroes. I, I yeah. totally agree with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so from this point on, you're now paralysed from the chest downwards and you've got limited use of your arms, obviously, but it is quite limited, isn't it? 
Yeah, I, I've got a bit of bicep. I've got no no finger movement whatsoever. Um, I can move my wrist up, and I've got no tricep, so I can't physically lift myself. I have to be lifted in and out of my wheelchair and out of bed and that sort of stuff. Um, so I can't dress myself. Um, I can't wash myself. You know, I can't do anything. You know, I sit here speaking to you today, and I'm luckily I've got you know all my I, I can articulate myself verbally, and you know it's nice that. People think of me as Jeff, they don't think of my disability, but I, you know, it is difficult coming to terms as a young person with, it's about the things you can't do and it's turning, it's understanding your limitations. And again, this is another, another lesson I've taken through life, really. You start to learn, you've got to come to terms with the things you can't do. You can't yeah. fight them. Um, it's no point getting angry over them, mm-hmm. uh, like being stuck at the traffic lights. You, know, you can't yeah. do anything about it. You just got to accept it. Um, and understand and learn to understand and, and, and control those things you can. So I learned, it, it took a while probably. I'm not, I wouldn't say that I was ever angry. I'm not sure I ever went through a period of mourning um, as such. Um, and one of the reasons I, I think about that a lot, because I get asked it, um, is because I was in a hospital with three other lads, so there's four of us the same age, all had the same disability all in hospital for, for 12 months or thereabouts. And all of us, lads being lads, were ruthless to each other. If any <laughs> one of us shown a sign of weakness, any one of us, we were savage. Um, and maybe that was our defence mechanism for showing our feelings. Um, so, you know, a year goes by and, you know, you've not told anyone how sad you feel about not being able to move your fingers. And, and then before you know it, life moves on. So... Um, maybe a lot of that was caged up. It reminds me of, I did a run with a couple of um, amputees who were ex-Royal Marines, actually, and their humour at themselves was just brutal. You know, like, they were, they, we were on a coach doing this run and we we were getting off and doing little segments of the run and then getting back on the coach and they were talking about, the, you know, the two seats being the perfect length for them, you know, and their, 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 their body had been designed to fit on, on, a, on a double coach seat and they were, they were, they were just brutal to each other, but... But that, I suppose that's that's what gets you through these things. It's what gets you through. And um, you have to be able to laugh at yourself a bit. Um, you know, I've learned, you know, if I drop something on the floor, it's pointless struggling for the next day to pick it up. Um, when there's someone next door I could ask to pick it up. Um, the, the trick is to learn not to drop it. <laughs> I suppose, yes. Um, right. You talk about limitations and knowing your own limitations and, and accepting them. And, and I, I get that from a sort of Zen perspective. There's no point in being frustrated at things that you can't change. However, the extraordinary thing about your story is obviously that you didn't accept a stereotypical life, I suppose, as a, as a, as a quadriplegic, as somebody who's been paralysed. Um, you went out and did some pretty extraordinary stuff, which a lot of people would say that wasn't within your um, capabilities. It was 23 years later, but... Um, you you became the first person to sail single-handedly around um, Great Britain. What was the driving force behind behind that? Um, you make a good point because it, it it took 23 years. Yeah. Had the opportunity presented itself a year, two years after my accident, it just never would have happened. Um, it was part of it was part of the journey, and getting there um, has been incremental. Um, it was incremental in un- understanding my disability. It was understanding our relationship, understanding work, um, housing, all of it. Getting those things in a row. Um, and I guess the point I could really point to most was probably six, seven years later after my accident is when I got back into a boat for the very first time. It took seven years to get into a boat. Um, and within a couple of years, I was doing a bit more sailing. And, and five years later, I sailed around the Isle of Wight, which was 60 miles. Um, so it was incremental to understanding my capabilities as well as understanding my limitations. Let me just qualify something else as well. I worked all the time that this was going on, by the way. I got a job with working for a firm called Deloitte. And I started off as a database manager and I ended up becoming head of marketing um, and business development. And that taught me a lot of skills. It taught me also that, that when you're out there doing things actively, um, you're not sat there worrying about your disability all the time. And actually, it's all very well to sit there and say, everyone hates me, the world is not accessible to me. Um, well, actually, I've learned that if you go out there and do things, people aren't as bad as, as you know they're often made out to be. People will try and make things work for you. And, and I felt very much integrated as part of the team at Deloitte. And no one ever talk to me about my disability or what I couldn't do. I was, I was a member of the team. 
so that gave me the strength to find myself in 2007, deciding that what I wanted to do was um, something a little bit more extraordinary and keep pushing the boundaries. And also I discovered that every time I did something that pushed the boundaries, people were responding to it in a positive way, not just disabled people, but able-bodied people. And, you know, um, maybe later in the story, I, I can kind of talk about, you just need to, and you may have found this as well, Ed, when people listen to you, you just need to scratch the surface. And we're all having, we're all vulnerable in some way. And particularly doing my, you know, when I, when I do what I do, people tell you things they wouldn't ordinarily tell you. And, and so in 2007, when I sailed around Britain, I should say it didn't start off well. The first day I set off, I fell in the water and I nearly drowned. This is me on a pedestal. I'm going to be a hero, sail around Britain. And three minutes later, I'm face down in the water. My life jacket didn't open. And I was, I kissed Elaine and Tim goodbye. And I was, a bit, I was drowning um, because I'd fallen out of my boat. Um, now, you know, you could argue, well, what the hell were you thinking of? Um, but I had to get, pick myself back up, learn from it. And I got back in the boat. And sure enough, it took me 110 days to sail around Great Britain. Um, I visited 51 harbours around the country. But that, more than anything in my life, proved to me that um, when I set my heart at something, I, I saw the end game from the beginning. I was crossing that finishing line, hands in the air, cheering. Um, that was always how it was going to end. Um, and people followed, you know, I put together a team and they followed me. They believed in me. And I've always got the greatest respect for them. And um, that was the moment because that was kind of the birth of social media, 2007. Facebook was not even invented then, but I think um, people were using the internet and blogs and things and um, people started to follow me. And I realized that what I'd done, I'd done something personally for myself, but also I realized I was actually getting, you know, spreading this message about um, people being able to do more if they put their mind to it. And so was it a two-pronged thing then? I mean, I, I do remember when I bought the Amazon, which was 2008, so roughly right at the same time. And um, for me, it was an ego thing. I've got to be honest. Um, back then, I didn't, I didn't have family, didn't have responsibilities. I wasn't emotionally mature. And I wanted to kind of, I, I was a little bit insecure, if anything. And I wanted to beat my chest and I wanted to um, prove to the world how tough I was, you know. And it, it seems slightly comical looking back on it. But, but I suppose any drive can be used in a positive way can't it but um for you was it more sort of um was it more wholesome from the beginning were you doing this sort of on on behalf of disabled people um if i'm totally honest with you ed no i like you i'm hand on heart it was a selfish kind of it was a vanity project if you like i wanted to you know i could see the accolades i'd get from it and the you know hopefully some adoration and kind of also <laughs> stop people stop telling me that you know, um, just because you're disabled, you know, you can't do things. Look what I can do and kind of create some kind of um, persona around me as being invincible and being able to do these things. And and at that point, and it's important to say this now, because at the, the subsequent challenge, that all that all came un, un, unraveled. But during this challenge, I never spoke about the I never spoke about the personal stuff, my challenges, the care that I needed to do that. You know, people saw Jeff Holt quadriplegic sail around Britain. They didn't see Elaine caring for me every night and every morning. They didn't see the medical issues that I was struggling. And I kept that secret. Um, so with hindsight, I might retrospectively say, yeah, I did it to help and promote disability. But, you know, honestly, at the time, that event was my event. But you talk about emotional maturity. I, I grew up from that quickly. Um, and I realized, actually that people were following me and they were trusting me um, and they were kind of putting me, maybe a little, some of them on a pedestal. That gay came with that responsibility um, and I felt uncomfortable and unsure about that. Was I worthy of it? Um, so it's all getting a bit deep, I'm afraid, but I did, I, I had to think long and hard after around Britain. What was it? I mean, you talk about Elaine looking after you in the, in the evenings and stuff. Was it was it a really tough thing for her as well? And like, I mean, most people won't know all of the sort of ins and outs of of of, of the care that she has to provide. But um, she wasn't on the boat with you. She was she was on a support boat, was she? No. So let me explain. So I sailed around Great Britain in a boat that's fifteen foot long. So it's the yeah. length of most people's dinner tables. Okay. Um, and I sat in it on my own. It had one sail. 
Um, I had a rope wrapped around my wrist that did pull the sail in and out. And I held the steering tiller in the other one. And I did it in a series of day sails. I did it in a series of 50 um, sails of anywhere between 40 and 60 miles. Sometimes I did over, over 80, 90 miles a day. And it's about one and a half thousand miles to sail around Britain. So in the morning, I was lifted into this boat um, by my crew. I also had a, a rib, a rigid inflatable boat with three people on it at all times who followed me. And the reason I mention this is because I need people to understand the logistics. So there's me in my boat. There's a rib with an engine in it with three people in it. Every night, I had to sleep in a wheelchair-accessible motorhome. There's not many of those in the country. We had to buy one. Um, and in that motorhome was me, there was Elaine, and our five-year-old son. There was no TV. There was no radio. Then we had the crew motorhome, which slept four of them. And then we had a Land Rover, um, a Discovery, and we had um, two road trailers. So if you imagine three vehicles, eight people, two trailers, and two boats. And we went to 51 harbours. That's 51 starts, 51 stops. We were arriving at 8, 9 at night, leaving at 4 in the morning. The logistics were insane. Um, but people only ever saw me. They'd, they'd see me emerge from my motorhome in the morning. There might be the old press photographer there. Then I'd disappear off into the sunrise. You know, and just after sunset, I'd arrive somewhere and there'd be the photographers there and the Rotarians wanting a signature or a photo. Um, and then I'd say, good night, everybody. And I'd go into the motorhome and I would collapse. Elaine would get me out of my dry suit. I was cold, wet. Um, she'd sh give me a hot shower. She'd feed me. She'd get me into bed. And I wonder what you were going to say then. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> <Steady. laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Um, it, was, um, it was all business as usual. Um, yeah. So it was, and we had 110 days of that, Ed. Right. Uh, and people didn't see that. And the reason I mentioned that then is, and why it's important, because two years later when I sailed across the Atlantic, it was only one start and it was only one finish. Oh, right. But I needed to talk about taking someone with me. I couldn't pretend no one was going to look after me. Right, okay. And so how many people was that with? So that was with, that was with three, but it was me. There was a full-time carer who came with me um, who was a specialist in spinal injuries care, and there was a BBC cameraman. And that left in November 2009 from the Canary Islands. And I did all of the sailing. I did every single bit of it. Um, no one else on the boat could sail. That My carer had never been on the <laughs> boat before in her life. Um, that, was, I, that, was that wise, looking back well, on it? When I, when I notified everyone that I was going to do this, I put an advert in a spinal injuries magazine. I said, high-level quadriplegic is going to sail a 60-foot yacht across the Atlantic Ocean. Anyone interested in coming to help me? I had quite a few applications, and nearly all of them were, I used to sail, my dad was a sailor, I've got my, all of those went in the bin. Anyone that was a sailor went in the bin. And the one person that said, I've never sailed before, you're not going to choose me, um, was Susanna. And, um, and I chose Susanna because she was honest about it. She said I might get seasick, but I knew that she was going to be good. She was a, she was a, a, a specialist carer for someone with a spinal cord injury. And, um, and so I chose Suze, and Suze came, and Suze didn't. There was also, I didn't want a sailor. There was two other reasons I didn't want a sailor on board. One is I'm a control freak. I wanted to do all of that sailing myself. I didn't want someone questioning my decisions. But equally, I didn't want to get the other end and someone say, yeah, but I bet you when you were asleep, one of your crew members did the sailing. Um, at least right. I could say Susanna couldn't. You know, I know how to navigate. I know how to navigate across an ocean. I know how to make a boat go to, to sail the boat into the wind or, you know, or away from the wind. I know physically how to sail. And what I couldn't physically do was pull ropes and get myself into bed. So the boat was a 60-foot catamaran of 2 million euros, I think this thing cost. It was a friend of mine and who lent it to me, and he's a wheelchair user. And you push buttons to turn the winches to get the sails in or get the sails out. Um, and I did all of the sailing. I navigated it the whole way across the Atlantic, and it took four weeks. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. What was, what was the scariest part in both those trips, really, I suppose? So the first one, the first, the first, around Britain, the, the scariest bit was um, being caught in a, a severe storm between um, Arbroath and Dunbar, going across the, the, um, the Murray Firth 
the, the wind and tide changed, um, the sun was setting, it was getting dark, and um, wind against tide created some fairly horrendous seas. Mm. And I lost control of my boat. I couldn't sail it. It was not, it, it was not, that no sailor wants to lose control of their craft. And, and I couldn't physically hold the boat. And we always had this um, emergency scenario where the rib would come alongside and tow me but it was so rough they couldn't come alongside. And I was worried my boat was going to puncture the inflatable tubes on the rib. Yeah, yeah. So the, we reverted to our last, well, we had one other, one final option. The final option was for me to throw myself out the boat and they would pick me up. But just before we went to that nuclear option, they trailed a rope from the back under my dinghy and I managed to wrap my arm around the rope and they managed to pull me in but it virtually dislocated my shoulder just wow. so i could get but it was my last last chance because i would have had to throw myself in the water and you were just buoyant again because your life jacket. i would have had a life jacket on yeah. and, well yeah. hopefully they'd have got to me and saved me um but so that was a scary moment um, um and with the other one i guess crossing the atlantic the other one was Susanna got quite poorly quite seasick um which is part you know she wasn't a sailor and so Susanna was there to help me um, get us across the ocean. So when she became incapacitated for a short period, um, I was concerned what, from a selfish point of view, that meant that I couldn't get the care I needed to get us to safety. Um, but she pushed through it, you know, and, um, and all, credit to, uh, all credit to Suze. She, she, you know, battled her, her seasickness and her, her, you know, not feeling well to help me. Um, and then the last, the last six days, we ran out of petrol um, or diesel. And the reason we need diesel is to run the generators, to run the navigation. And so I physically had to steer the boat with no power steering for quite a few days. So they, they both had different. And I guess the final thing with the crossing Atlantic is that I've not been away for Tim and Elaine for that length of time ever. Um, it was Christmas. It was New Year's. Um, and, um, and I wasn't there to celebrate it with them. So there was an emotional element to that crossing. Yeah. I understand what you mean by um, wanting definitely nobody else to be able to sail on it. I mean, post-walking the Amazon, one of the little niggles was, would I, would I have been able to do it if I hadn't had Cho, who was extraordinarily competent at fishing and all and at, uh, negotiating sort of dangerous people and stuff like that. But um, therefore, I ended up you know, going to that island on my own. And I totally understand wanting to know that, or wanting everybody else to know as well, that you can do it on your own and that you've not had support doing it, which is... Which is daft, really, isn't it? But um, I wonder if it's yeah, interesting. I, get it. I wonder, does it show maybe we still have slight insecurities, Ed? Um, you know, we. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, as you were saying, it's 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 all part of a journey, isn't it? And I think you need to become independent before you can become interdependent because you, you need to be able to stand on your own two feet and, and maybe have a, a level of competency before you can constructively give to a family and before you can have more of an impact, I suppose. But um, I, I just think it's, it's certainly in the military, the first um, exercise you do at the Royal Military Academy, Sandhurst, is called um, self-reliance, but then it goes on into, into other things. But no, I don't think there's anything wrong with... Um, with needing to prove yourself to yourself at some stage in your life, if you're still doing it at the age of seventy-eight, then it, then that's <laughs> one thing that was one thing that also that I learned in the in the round Britain, so the, the two thousand and seven one, is that I realised quite early on I couldn't control everything, and so by letting go of an element of that of that project um, and handing over the effectively the the operational side of it to a chap called um, to Ian Clover. Ian was my project manager. So I delegated to Ian the responsibility of deciding whether we sailed or not. Now, bear in mind, I was the yachtsman. I was sailing around Britain. That was a huge, huge thing for me to give up. Because on more than one occasion, there were times when I would look out and I'd think, do you know what, I could sail today. And Ian would say, you're not. The conditions are going to deteriorate and you're not going to sail. And I was sat there, I would have sailed if it wasn't for you. And and nine times out of ten, he was absolutely right. So being able to delegate that, and in many ways it took that pressure off me as well, and it made us more of a team. Yeah, again, the mirror for that was um, when Joe and I were walking, we'd walk for an hour, but we'd walk for 50 minutes of the hour and we'd have a 10-minute break, and then of that 50 minutes, we'd have 25 minutes where we both were in front. And during those 25 minutes, we both completely agreed not to challenge the person in front's decisions because... 
it's just wasted energy isn't it does it really fucking matter which way around a tree you go you know it doesn't at all does it so and yet then it gave you the space to not make decisions during your you know your 25 minutes off a day and that's allows your brain to relax but it also meant there was never any tension between us and yeah those responsibilities are quite important to carve up aren't they i think and also it, it helped bizarrely with sponsors because there was a pressure to get around britain and we were held up by the weather the bbc and the media were saying you know is it off because we were stuck in wales for three weeks because of the weather in 2007 you know is it not going to happen is it going to happen um, and Ian was just able to say to to be the barrier between us and saying, "Sorry, the weather's not right. We've got we've got um, you know risk assessments which state we won't sail over fifteen knots. I'm not going to allow Jeff to sail." Um, now, had that barrier not been there, I worry that I may have caved into sponsor pressure and actually put myself at risk. So, you know, it had its benefits. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Having achieved so much because of something that happened that, that essentially was adversity, wasn't it? You know, it was an accident that absolutely changed your life. Do you think you would have had the same success in life had it not happened? Part of me just thinks, I'm not even going to think about it because it's, you know, it's like thinking if I won the lottery when I was a, you know, a teenager, when my life would change. Yeah. Um, I just have to accept that my life took a path. It, Life is, we talked about this journey earlier on, and part of this journey that we all take, you know, I suppose you could say a bit of a cliche, but doors open up as you go on it, and it's your decision whether to go have a look, what's the other side of the door, whether to go through it or not. Um, and I've always been a bit of a, someone asked me if I was a risk taker. Um, no, someone asked me by say, whether sailing around Britain, I was reckless. And I got quite cross about that because I'm not reckless. Everything, everything I do, the risk is calculated. A father and her husband are not going to take uncalculated risk. However, it's this tightrope between jeopardy. Everyone wants to know that you could die with the next big wave, um, but equally safety on the other side. So it's a bit of a long-winded way to answer your question, but I believe my life has been more, possibly more fulfilled. Um, I was always one to look the other side of the door. So if I didn't have my accident in September 84, maybe it could have been a, another accident a year down the line. Who knows? It is what it is. I'm grateful that I have, it feels like I've made the most of it. At times, it feels there's so much more I can do. And hopefully in the last few minutes, we may have some time to talk about that. But it, it's, I, I, I'm never feeling fulfilled. I always want to keep pushing and pushing. And that's what gives me my energy to get up in the morning. I totally get all that, and yes, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have met Elaine or had Tim or any of those things. So it's like it's, it is a nonsensical question. I suppose where I was trying to go with it though was, do you think having had the pain and the suffering of that, it's it's almost because right, okay, my adoption story in the end has become a positive thing, right? But I do think that it's given me a greater capacity to um, achieve things in life because I don't know. I, do you not find that often? The people who have been through something pretty horrendous, or that has caused them some sort of a some sort of traumatic event, in in a weird way, it allows them to become more than they would have been had they just skimmed along the surface of life. I yeah, I do, and I and Robin Knox Johnson used a word once about painting your life in colours. Um, it, it adds to the colour of your, your story. It adds, you know, it is part of your story. It should add to the narrative of your story. 
also, I mean, you you won't know this, but um, my my mum is now on her third marriage. Um, I should say we haven't spoken for thirty years, so um, I'm sure she'll find it fascinating to hear this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so we're not spoken thirty. So she's on a third marriage. But I had a brother who sadly died a couple of years ago, and I've got a sister. And I saw us kids being almost not at the front of the of the uh, you know her thoughts as a mother. Um, she may disagree and would most strongly probably disagree with that. But as a child, that's how I saw it. Um, and also the fact that she's on her third marriage. So I made a I made a promise to myself that I would never ever get divorced and I would never ever leave my children. And that's one of the reasons why you know Elaine and I love each other more than ever. But thirty three years. You know, with an 18-year-old son, and I just feel that I'm giving him everything I didn't have. So it comes back. I'm not saying it's the same as an adoption story, but it's kind of it is those little things in life that you, I think, help shape you as a person. Um, if you can turn them into positives, that's better rather than being angry at them and resentful. And to make, like, in my in my circumstance, the fact that I've hopefully created a, a much more stable upbringing for my my child and our family um but they do add to the, your color and um and they add to the narrative and as long as they're in a positive way and you can interweave those into your story um i think uh, it's it's much more credible i totally agree you've briefly mentioned it but um wet wheels is um is one of the things that um obviously is is big do you want to just explain for the sake of the audience what what wet wheels is and what and why you set that up so as I've spoken for the last, you know, 30, 40 minutes or so about sailing, sailing is my life. Sailing's always been my life. Sailing will always be my life. And I always caveat this answer with, with that bit about sailing because there's a real snobbery in people who go on the water, whether sailing is better than motorboating or motorboating is better than sailing. And I'm absolutely fed up to the back teeth of it. I'm mm-hmm. a member of quite a few yacht clubs. I won't mention mm-hmm. them, but they're all, all the same um, about, you know, which one's better. Um, having spent all this time... Um, with sailing, and one thing I haven't spoken about is in 1995, I founded a, um, I was the founding chairman of a charity called Sailability, which now has 200 centres across the country and thousands, tens of thousands of disabled people sailing every year. So sailing is in my blood. It's always been in my blood. Um, but when I finished the Atlantic, more and more people I recognised were not going on the water. And it's on the water where I feel the magic happens. That's the, that's the X factor. And I don't give a monkeys if it's on a sailboat or a powerboat, it's getting on the water. And I recognised that there was this huge number of people who were not going on the water. And I was saying to them, have you tried sailing? There's all these sailing centres, there's these charities. Yeah, there's 240 sailing charities in the UK. Um, 240. Yet there are still almost half a million people who cannot go on them. And they can't use these charity sailboats because they predominantly use wheelchairs or electric wheelchairs. And a number of the sailing charities that take wheelchairs will not take a powered wheelchair. And I'm thinking, well, hang on a minute. The, if they, you know, this, it's all about being on the water. How are we going to make that happen? So um, in 2011, I, I mortgaged my house and I, because I, um, I wanted to start, I wanted to get the first big power boat to take people, disabled people on the water. Um, and not just a, 15, 20 footer, I wanted a 30 foot, you know, a 10 meter, nine meter powerboat with big engines on the back that push the thing along at speed. Um, and I wanted something that, that could take disabled people with their friends, their family, um, you know, their loved ones out on a, on a trip on the water. And not just that, but something that let them drive the boat. And nothing existed, nothing exists in the world where someone who's in a powered wheelchair can go up and drive um, a powerboat at 30 knots. So I thought, well, that's, I'm going to change that. So I mortgaged my house. Um, I went to speak to Suzuki Marine, who agreed to give me some big engines. They gave me two 300 horsepower engines, so 600 horsepower uh, on my on my boat. And Ray Marine gave me a whole load of electronics and Cheetah Marine helped me with the cost of the boat. And before we knew it, we had a, a boat worth 160, 170,000 quid on the water. And here it was like, oh my God, what, how does this work? So I took it to the petrol pump and it cost me 600 quid to fill it up. And I thought, well, this isn't, this isn't going to last very long. So I quickly understood people wanted to help support me. So I decided to set up a charity called the Wet Wheels Foundation. Um, and that very first boat, Wet Wheels, in its first year took 400 people. That same boat in Portsmouth last year took 1,750 people. 
Um, however, we don't have one boat now. We have five boats around the country. So I've got a boat in Whitby in Yorkshire, uh, Dover in Kent, Jersey in the Channel Islands, Hamble in Southampton, and um, the Portsmouth boat in Portsmouth. Everyone is identical. Everyone is a nine meter cheetah catamaran. You couldn't tell them apart. We're taking 7,000 people on the water a year. And as, that is, as if that's not good enough, my sixth boat, um, Wet Wheels Southwest, is nearly finished being built and it's been delivered to Falmouth in uh, uh, next month in about four weeks time. So I'll have six Wet Wheels boats uh, in the water. Um, I should also say that 80% of the people who come on our boats have never been on the water before. So all of this 240 sailing charities, why haven't you been on the water before? Because the, the barriers have been there to prevent us going on the water. Um, what barriers? Well, we can't take our wheelchair on the boat. And so they come on the boat, they come with their mums, dads, brothers, sisters, other friends in wheelchairs. Um, and like I say, they all get to drive the boat. Um, and you can tell I'm quite passionate about it, but I will just finish the one last real USP. It's not just driving the boat. We work with perhaps, you know, we talk about disabled people making up 11% of the population. There's a subset of disabled people an excluded subset, an invisible subset. And these are people with profound, multiple and complex disabilities. These are severely disabled young people um, who are often in hospices. We can take those, we take nearly all of those, well, we've, we've never said no to anyone. Um, and these, so if a young, in the short journey of a young person's life, they may have you know, tubes, ventilators and all sorts, they can be captain of a power boat doing 30 knots for a moment in time. And that's what I find so powerful. Mate, it's, it's incredible. I've obviously, I don't know whether you remember, but you invited me on the boat. And so, yeah, I, w I was on it with um, with one, one load of passengers and just looking at the elation on their faces was extraordinary. Yeah, and you know, they, they wouldn't have access to anything like that. And just the visceral experience of the speed and the, totally. the, the sort of G-force and stuff like that was just... That sensory yeah. visceral, visceral experience, extraordinary. absolutely right. Yeah. I don't know whether it's too negative a question, really, but um, what pisses you off the most at the moment? Um, okay, what pisses me off? Um, uh, laziness. Um, I okay. don't like that as an, as an attribute in someone. I don't like laziness. I don't like being um, taken for granted. I don't like being let down. I've been let down a lot. Again, we won't talk now, but about the Monaco, um, the, you know, my round the world dreams have taken a massive hit in the last two years since we last spoken and it's by people who should know better who've let me down desperately um but you know it's kind of a metaphor for life you get kicked you get up again um i'm getting a bit tired of getting kicked um and so yeah that that pees me off a bit it's being um being let down you kind of trust people when they let you down i'm really sorry to hear that i mean that was that was my last question i was going to ask about the round the world road because it was something that i knew that you were so passionate about wanting to do but is that is that not looking likely anymore the, the round the world sailing project was my ambition to become the first disabled person to sail like i did the atlantic but around the world and it got a huge amount of traction i had a lot of very important people people who sh should be no better got behind me and supported me and made me promises and pledges. Um, and over the last four years, I have had to pick myself up three or four times from being let down. And when you think that is going to happen, it sits on your shoulder like a monkey and you, it takes, it preoccupies. You can't focus on wet wheels. You can't focus on your family. You think I'm on the verge of finding a major sponsor. This person says it's going to happen. This person has promised me it's going to happen. Oh my God, I can't believe it's going to happen. And then you're let down and you're, it's like having the rug pulled underneath you. It hurts emotionally. You have to pick yourself back up and don't let people see how much it's hurt. And then you, you have to go on another six, nine month journey trying to find sponsors. Um, you know, I've been to Monaco four times now. I've met some of the most wealthy people in the, on the planet who've assured they'd help me. I've met people in London. I've been, you know, had my patron is the Princess Royal, Princess Anne, at dinners at Buckingham Palace with people promising to help me. Um, who weeks later pulled pull the plug. And so I took the decision to say I'm not going to do it anymore. I think by removing that promise, it, that pledge or that aspiration, it's eased a bit. Um, having said that, it still just sits there and every so often a little monkey whispers in my shoulder, go on, Jeff, you're not too old to try it. Yeah, but. well, okay, that leads on to the next question. Like, 
With Walking the Amazon, I, I remember coming back and registering walkingthenile.com and walkingthehimalayas.com, both of them that ended up getting done by Leveson Wood. But um, I think I came to a conclusion after it that if I've not sort of scratched the itch that needed to be scratched by walking the Amazon for two and a half years, that, you know, walking another river wasn't really going to do it. But there's clearly something in you that has, has your sights on something bigger. What do you think that, that motivation is? Because I don't want to wake up one morning, Ed, and see that someone else has done it. Really? That's so it. It's quite competitive, actually, then, yeah. I know everyone in this field. I know every disabled sailor. And yeah. and, and, and this is what I'm about to say is in no way pointed at any individual um, disabled person. But you look at the Paralympics, and mm. people who are winning medals at Paralympics are not people who are quadriplegic sat in wheelchairs. They're people who have disabilities of a... a, a of a, a more minor nature, let's put it that way. And that's, they still have their own struggles, don't get me wrong. But as far as the public's, the media are concerned, they're disabled. Um, so what will happen is you'll get someone who may sail around the world with a, you know, with a more of an impairment um, and will be classified as the first disabled person to do it. Um, and I know most of those people, and I don't want, don't want someone else to be the first, because I know I can do it. I know I've got the bloody CV, excuse me, swearing. I've got the CV <laughs> to do it. I've got the CV to do it. Um, no one else has got where I've got to do it. And I know what's needed to do it safely. And it won't be quick. It'll be the safe way. It'll be around the equator. And it'll take one and a half years. Um, and I want to be the one to do that. Maybe that's the itch that needs, just needs constantly needs scratching. Yeah, maybe. Mate, well, I really hope that that does happen one day. I mean, I think, you know, it's extraordinary. Your life is extraordinary, both on a domestic front, on an adventuring front, and obviously on a on a philanthropic front as well with your charities that you've, you've set up. So thank you very much for um, for taking the time to chat to me, mate. And um, fingers crossed we can get together and have a beer before too long. I think lockdown's about to finish, really, isn't it, or, to all intents and purposes? I, I don't know whether you're, you're going to be able to come out of lockdown in the same rate as everyone else is, but... Um, is that yeah, something... that's the plan. Lockdown is easing. Boris said that we can start to widen our social bubbles. It's not so much about me. It's about the people. I want to get people out on the boat. I don't want the summer to go with them to miss the opportunity. But thanks for having me on. It's been a, a real lovely opportunity to, to vent my spleen a little bit about some things. I hope I've not been too... Blissful. Mate, you've been, you've been brilliant. And, and no, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Let's chat soon and have a beer. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts and all other podcast platforms to get new episodes first thing every Monday. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 